The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, thanks for joining me today. This is Paul Rudy for Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz, as usual. Dr. Fred, good to see you. Good to be here. And son David Rudy, certified financial planner professional and retirement income certified professional. David, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And my son Paul, Paul Rudy, certified financial planner professional as well. Thanks for having me. I feel like it's been a while since I've been in Champaign. It's been a while. Your mom's been nagging me about you. Not <laughs> that's, nagging, that's but the saying, weather, hey, you when's know? Paul coming? Uh, you can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, Fred, uh, from an economic standpoint, it seems like more of the same. I got a lot of data here, but, uh, well, I'll just synthesize it real quick. But the macro data seems to point mostly to positive growth. And one of the things I always, I've learned to worry about is if the te- if the yield curve uh, inverts, which just means the 10-year Treasury security has a higher interest rate than a 30-year Treasury bond, that's always been, you know, uh, you know, that always that has always occurred at least in the last 40 years before a recession and there's usually quite a lag time I've talked about this a couple of times but it's it's least it's at least a year and sometimes two or three years so it kind of makes me at least think that uh, you know I don't see a recession imminent like you say there can always surprise you unemployment claims reaching a 48 year low in March that's pretty good unemployment uh, kind of goes along the other side of the coin. Uh, monthly employment gains average 190,000 in the past year. Annual growth rate of one percent, one point six percent year over year. Uh, I suppose more importantly, uh, Fred, for the workers, the kind of have this improving trend in compensation growth, two point six percent year over year. Uh, looks like retail demand is strong. Housing second highest level in the past ten years. Manufacturing core durable goods. Up 7.3% year over year, close to the best annual growth rate in four years. And with all that wrapped in, and I'm trying to get my arm around, my uh, head around that one, and my arm. Well, you were just telling me about our friend Jack that won the Pan Am games in Brazil. I was going to say arm bars on the (laughs) mind. Inflation rate, Fred, has stayed really, it's real near the target of 2% for the Federal Reserve. Uh, But it seems like with all this, all this record job creation, uh, low unemployment. You would, I would almost expect, and I, maybe I'm just missing it, but I'm not. We're really not so far seeing that inflation cost structure really hit the inflation rate that much. Right, and the, the long-term uh, implicit infla- inflation rate from uh, bond market is still relatively low too. So I think that uh, we're, we're getting close to the the two percent the Federal Reserve wants, which is good, but uh, they don't have the ability to control it. So I think there's always the Upside potential. We've heard that now for ten years about uh, you know, expanding money supply and, and monetary policy after the uh, Great Recession was going to have this huge uh, influx of sure. inflation that never happened. So again, uh, there's no assurance about the future, but it seems like a a, a kind of sweet spot right now. We're not worrying about uh, uh, deflation now, and we're not worried about uh, runaway inflation. Why is it that uh, I've, I've had a number of people ask me? Why would a Federal Reserve sort of want 2% inflation? Or is maybe that not the right way to put it? Maybe the target is not. Is right. the target a target like they would prefer well, to have it, a couple percent a, inflation? Yeah, it's a 2% uh, target, but the target's imperfect. I think we talked many times <clears throat> about the fact that inflation doesn't capture a lot of things that are happening, uh, technological improvement, uh, things of that sort. Uh, I know people think the prices are going up much faster than the stated rate of inflation, but most economists believe that it overstates inflation. So 2% is really not a uh, not, not a, a very challenging kind of target. It's sort of like a stable situation. And when you say technology, is that if you adjust for, and you really look at certain things have gone up a lot over the last 10 or 20 years, yeah. medical care, college costs, yeah. uh, though that's changing on the college cost side, uh, it seems to be. 
but really where you see the dramatic improvement are automobile costs, televisions, computers. Right, things like that. that but, our, but those are, are ones that are manageable. There are all kinds of other things that are happening in terms of uh, – what you get uh, through the internet, uh, entertainment, things of that sort that sure. aren't really captured in uh, inflation numbers. So, or, so, or productivity, really, right. or, or general gross domestic product. Yeah, it's, a, a lot of uh, technological changes have not resulted necessarily in, in uh, better production or, or cheaper production. It's resulted in, in enhanced consumption opportunities. That doesn't really get captured very easily. And certainly when you look at you know, like how much leisure time people have compared to 50 or 100 years ago, or how much it costs to buy a refrigerator, how many hours you have to work. I mean, these are really vast improvements over people's lives. And right. Why is there so much negativity? Why, why, why do you suppose, Fred, if I'm even right, it seems to me that most people don't buy this idea that life's getting better right. for the average American. Well, I think it, first there, there are two things. One, uh, kind of psychologically, that, that people uh, – kind of compare it to the very best. So if you say, well, what's the best we've ever had, and we're not quite at that point, then things are worse. Uh, what they should be comparing with is the average that uh, uh, you've been for a long time, and we're, we're clearly better off. And they're also, uh, not surprisingly, uh, some people who aren't sharing in the uh, in the good things. Oh, sure. But again, like I, I think I've used this example before. When uh, I was a kid, I was a baseball fan, and I used to watch one game a week on Saturday afternoon from some place like usually the Yankees or someone, and that was it. Now I have uh, you know six games a day that I could watch if I wanted to. So there's, that, that doesn't get captured in the uh, in the uh, productivity numbers. And again, probably uh, I'm glad they didn't have uh, six games a day when I was a kid. <laughs> I can can handle it now. <laughs> oh, I was my happiest day was when I, my dad said it was okay if I quit little league. Yeah, <laughs> he might have actually suggested it, but. Uh, <laughs> I think all my teammates suggested it, too. Well, Paul, you mentioned earlier off the radio, it's the Friday marked the nine-year anniversary of the bull market that we're currently in. Um, remember the fellow on CNBC, Mark Haynes, who passed away? Great guy. Uh, that day, I remember him. He called the bottom and said that was it. I think he was probably looking at what I was looking at when I always felt like, uh, and I don't know, Fred, if you agree or disagree, um, I always felt like the mark-to-market accounting really took a recession and made it horrible. Uh, the fact that the financial institutions, even though they were going to hold on to securities, mortgages, and things like that, had to mark them. You had this illiquidity kind of abyss going on. And I think most people don't realize that on March 9th, the day before is when uh, the General Accounting Standards Board um, changed the rules on mark-to-market accounting and really took off a lot of that burden right. and I always say they actually didn't change the rule that day but they said they were going to and March 9th it never looked back I don't think there's any coincidence there I think that was really something that turned it, that financial crisis into a real snowball so that so you know we're nine years into this thing and uh, it's been a great bull market uh, it's, it's been fabulous bull market and it's not unusual for a good long-term secular bull market to go on many more years and so that wouldn't surprise me at all yeah, uh, I, mean, I probably want to separate what you were talking about earlier uh, the likelihood of a, a recession I think is fairly small right now uh, but that's not to say that the market might not uh, uh, go in different directions because the market and the economy are connected but they're not uh, in lockstep so you could have for example uh, Maybe all the good news has been incorporated in the sure. stock market, and, and we no longer get any new good news. Uh, that that would, might mean that the market might not respond the same way the economy is. Because there's that old saying or the old theory, if not even a theory, maybe it's a fact, Fred, that the stock market you know discounts the future way ahead of time, and you know by the time the bad news shows up, the market's already may have already bottomed and turned up, yeah. and it seems to lead. And so, so you could maybe not see a recession in sight, but you could be at a peak of a market, and you just don't right. know it. And also, I think the it's kind of an odd uh, compliment, but the market, the uh, economy seems really strong, uh, given the turmoil at the uh, at the the level of the president. Uh, I, w I woke up this morning, and the first thing I heard was the uh, secretary of state was fired, and I then went to the uh, uh, stock market. I assumed it was going to be down several hundred points, and actually was up at that point. So. Uh, uh, I would consider a lot of uh, kind of strange decisions and counterproductive decisions like the uh, tariffs and 
firing of, of, of the staff, the resignation of the uh, trusted economic advisor uh, being uh, bad news, but the market seems to be able to uh, incorporate that and, and live with it, which is, probably shows the underlying strength of the economy. And speaking of tariffs, um, you know, that seemed to, just when everybody was getting a little bit giddy, uh, then we start talking about tariffs, and that kind of yeah. threw a little more turmoil into the stock and bond markets. Yeah. And uh, warranted, or do you think this is political gamesmanship? Well, uh, who knows at this point. Uh, I, I assume they're going to go ahead with it, but they've uh, backtracked uh, a little bit about saying we may not apply it to uh, Canada or Mexico. But even the administration was embarrassed about that. They didn't say we're, we're levying a tariff so we can uh, – uh, help inefficient American industries. They said it's for national defense reasons. And yeah, it's very, very hard you know, to domestic security, and you know, and, and I think it was Larry Kudlow. We'll talk a little bit about yeah. this because now he might be the next economic advisor. But you know, his point was, if you want to, if you're worried about your uh, domestic security, you know, keeping that steel industry so that we can literally make you know tanks and yeah. ships and things like that, um, subsidize it. I mean, I don't think he even likes that, but, you yeah. know, tariffs are just a big tax on Right, and also, uh, uh, it, it, it's like uh, we're thinking about the Civil War or World War I, uh, like we're going to have a, a four- or five-year war where we're cut off from our supplies around right. the world and, and can't figure out enough way to, uh, ways to produce uh, steel armor plate. And there's not the kind of wars we're going to be involved with if, if we're unfortunate enough to get in one. So national defense is really a, a totally phony kind of argument uh, it, it seems to me I, I think the whole i personally i'm not a tariff guy i don't i don't believe i i'm kind of from that milton friedman school better to sell you know better to buy below market than to sell no better to sell above market than buy below market yeah well there's a famous uh it's sell below market i mean back two or three hundred years ago there was a appeal uh, someone wrote a satirical appeal to uh, from the candle makers to close up all the windows because it's unfair competition the sun against the candle makers and someone rewrote that i think it recently. was federic bastiat wasn't yeah, it yeah. yeah and someone wrote it more recently saying well uh we're producing led light bulbs and yet the sun is coming in here and providing free uh light so why don't we do something about that so the, there's a a kind of uh, no end to the the idea once you start protecting it just uh, it just seems like once again yesterday's solutions are the cause of today's problems and it just happens over and over again. Yeah, Bastiat's one of my favorites in that way and just kind of on the national security kind of anti-war thing. Um, he has a great quote that I think is actually wrongly attributed to him, but uh, it's commonly known as a Bastiat quote that if goods don't cross borders, armies will. So sometimes I think those connections from trade are actually really important for national security. So I think that just blows up the national security argument once again. Well, again, it's a different kind of – if we're talking about maybe precious metals from someplace where there's no other supply, that might be an argument. But the fact that uh, – I don't think we have a lot of bauxite in the United States. Uh, we may, may – uh, uh, refined aluminum, but so there are all kinds of issues. It just doesn't make any sense. It's just uh, it shows that even even uh, the administration was embarrassed about saying we're just going out to protect our industry. And you know, you might even protect one industry, but yeah. you can really hurt a lot. There's five million jobs that are attached to the steel industry. That yeah, I mean, there, there are two levels. Yeah, there's two levels. The first is the direct level that uh, it helps a few uh, companies that uh, produce and a few workers, but then. It also increases the cost for many other industries who are using those It's a tax, inputs. isn't it, Fred? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tax. It really is a tax both uh, by definition. It's a tax on foreign goods. And it's also a tax in a broader sense on, on the American economy, uh, producers using the inputs, uh, people buying it, and so on. And then there's a third level, uh, which is even more serious probably for uh, people in Illinois, and that is even though uh, – our, uh, our farmers don't use a lot of uh, iron or aluminum. They sell abroad, and if we get into some kind of trade uh, war or trade uh, uh, situation, that's going to hurt us in terms of our exports. So it's, it's the kind of thing where um, you, you have to go a long ways to find an economist who would be in favor of it, and Trump actually found one. <laughs> Give me a sense of uh, perspective, though. Is this, is it, I mean, we have a pretty strong economy. It's certainly right. not, not, not runaway economy. It doesn't put that in jeopardy, does it? It's not no, big, not, it's not not big enough. A step. I mean, it goes back, there was a famous uh, uh, 1930 letter uh, from uh, several hundred economists saying how bad the Smoot-Hawley uh, tar tariffs were. And people have come to say, well, that was the cause of the, of the uh, 
severe depression. Well, it wasn't the cause. It was a, another uh, part of it. And this, Along I was, with screwing and, up the gold standard. And this and, is a bad, this is a, a, a negative thing. But as we said, the economy seems so strong right now that it can incorporate that and keep going straight up. Uh, straight up. That's what I was. I'm, uh, that's kind of you know. Even I can get rattled. I, I get. I got really furious about this personally. You yeah. know, and I don't know why. Life's yeah. short. Uh, but then, you, then I started really trying to put a sense of proportionality yeah. to it and saying, well, you know what? It, it by itself, it's not going to cause any major trouble, and so things can still look up and look rosy as far as I'm concerned. Well, finally, we were talking about jobs, but 313 new jobs in February. They were expecting 200,000. And we talk about wages, why they're improving, rising 2.6% on an annualized basis. basis. It's, to me, Fred, it's still a mystery of how we could have the labor force so involved yeah. and so many jobs, you would think, why are we not seeing wages go up, do you suppose? Because well, wages I, tend to be a big part of inflation. Yeah, well, I think it is now, but it's the uh, sort of stages of recovery, as you talked about, it's almost a 10-year uh, the, the actual recovery of the stock market began right now, 10 years ago, and the <clears throat> recovery of the economy began in the summer of, of 2009. But we had uh, all, all these hurdles. The first hurdle was the economy's not growing. That was overcome right away. Uh, the next hurdle was it's a jobless recovery. We weren't uh, adding yeah. jobs. That's overcome five or six years ago. And then the final one was, well, we're, we're growing, we're adding new jobs, but wages aren't going up. Or they're part-time. And, 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 now, and now wages actually are, are moving along. So all three of those things have been overcome. And again, uh, if you're looking at, uh, for good news for the unemployment rate to go even lower, that's probably not going to happen. It's about as low as it can uh, go right now. So it's more uh, you know, staying on. Or is it, or is it just that they're going to redefine it again? Yeah. Seem, they seem to redefine what full employment is, et cetera, from, well, I don't know, decade to decade, but maybe well, generation yeah, to generation. Yeah, redefine, I, I think it's, there's still, uh, there, there's no um, official definition, but we, it's gone up and down. Back uh, 40 years ago or so, a 6% unemployment rate was uh, a kind of a goal. We wanted to get below that, and we've been below that for uh, some time now and in the past, so it's a moving target depending on the, uh, I guess, on the uh, dynamics of the labor force. A couple of texts uh, on the Castle uh, Heating and Cooling text line, which is 3515357. The first one's about property taxes uh, from Mike in Champaign. And after just kind of glancing at it, it appears that Mike thinks the county might be reaching in and taking a little more than they should. And his question is, are, uh, if so, do you know the process of having my property assessment re-evaluated? I think the county's taking much more from me in property taxes than they should be. Again, that's Mike and Champaign. Well, there's two two levels. The first is kind of an informal, maybe uh, he should check about uh, how his property is assessed and compare it on Zillow or something like, something like uh, that to surrounding properties. If he finds it's out of line, uh, then he could make an informal inquiry to the uh, um, to the uh, uh, assessor, and then if that's not resolved, there's always a formal appeals process. <coughs> okay. And, and, and again, there's, there's two different issues. One is are they doing your, the math your, right? your assessment, and the other is uh, the tax rate. So uh, if your assessment's right and you think your taxes are too high, then the problem is uh, the governments are charging uh, a higher tax rate than you might think. And again, uh, there are lots of different, there are probably 10 or so different uh, units of government that levy the property tax, but by far the most important is the school district. So if you're uh, unhappy about your property taxes, it probably goes back to uh, school taxes. I think, I think you're right. Uh, and then another text from Mark, cost of goods and I hear this a lot too, by the way, Fred. Uh, so the final line isn't gonna be a surprise to you as an economist, you've heard it thousands yeah. of times. Cost of goods sold, uh, goods and services are based on a two income household. This screws a single person. Uh, well, a single person income CPI is a lie. Um, well, I don't think it depends on uh, whether it's one or two people. It's how much the uh, call, they yeah. think they have a uh, a basket of goods. They have a basket of goods, and they go out and uh, find out how much they are. And again, there there are imperfections when things are changing rapidly. But I, I suppose the basket could be for a, a, a three person family instead of a one person. But still, the prices are what they are. And as far as CPI. I don't think anybody's ever accused it of being the best measure of every person's inflation rate because, right. you know, a lot of dependency on whether you own a home or rent. That's a big factor in CPI. Yeah, so right. If one you, person ha experiences a much different CPI level than the other. Yeah, if you're uh, uh, 
living in a home that's fully paid for and the price of housing goes up, uh, that doesn't really affect you directly. It's actually a good thing. Your, your assets are increasing in value. But if you're a renter in San Francisco, yeah. uh, you probably got a little bit of a problem. Right. Well, I hear that from time to time or that it's manipulated. <clears throat> uh, Mark didn't say that, but I'm saying I've heard that, well, you can't trust it. It's, yeah. it, it doesn't mean anything. And the Fed uses what? The personal consumption expenditure? Right, and then they use a, uh, a measure that takes out uh, uh, food and, and energy sometimes to give themselves a better idea about what's happening. Is that because food and energy? I think that flusters people because they think, well, food and energy, everybody yeah. eats and everybody drives cars. Yeah. Why would they do that? Well, they're not doing it uh, as a measure of how people are are uh, affected by inflation. They're doing it for their own policy goals. And, and I think they believe that... Uh, like the price of, of oil is going to fluctuate much more than the uh, price of bread or the price of uh, of telephone, something of that sort. So they want to take out that volatility. But it's not they're not suggesting that people don't consume those. They're just using it for their own internal um, kind of decision-making process. You're listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money on WDWS. I'm here, as usual, with Dr. Fred Gertz, the, the genius in, uh, in residency. And Certified Financial Planner Professionals, Paul Rudy and David Rudy, who joined me again today. Well, David, speaking of you, um, you recently wrote an article that actually has stayed on the homepage of Investopedia for the last four days. And for those of you who don't know, Investopedia is kind of like that's the goal line you want to get to if you produce articles in this business. Is that fair to say, Paul? Uh, it's one of them. It's top ten for sure. Okay. And you wrote that how about... Uh, the, the ways investors can reduce in anxiety and set themselves up for success. I know, Paul, you put it on our Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages. That's pretty easy for people to get to. Yeah, it should be. It'll be fairly obvious. And the easiest thing, like you said, just how about going to our webpage? Same thing. Well, um, I don't have it yet. posted on the website just yet. Well, I'm letting fresh. it run on social media first, and okay. then yeah, we'll add it. Uh, before we talk about the post, Dave, uh, what was your motivation to write that? Is it uh, you just sometimes this is just so obvious that the trap that people fall into? I think it was kind of a confluence of things because uh, first and foremost, I was I was reading a book called The Daily Stoic and a kind of fundamental philosophy behind Stoic philosophy is that you need to separate out the things that you can control and the things that you can't control and then focus on the things that you can control. And, and one of them has a great quote that basically says a lot of anxiety that people have stems from them worrying about things that they can't control. And a lot of times if you do that, I mean, and you can't control it, you're just, things are going to go against you or what you want um, to have happen or whatever it may be. It's going to stress you out um, versus if you can just focus on the things that are under your control and then kind of let the other stuff happen as it, as it happens and then take it as it comes and, and do your best to adjust to whatever circumstances arise in your life, you're going to have a, a much more peaceful journey through life. So w when it comes to investors, retirees, uh, you know, we specialize in retirement planning. And uh, but I think it, uh, you know, this all investors can kind of fall into this trap. What are some of the co more common uh, things that people worry about that they can't control? Yeah. So, I, I mean, what, anytime I'm reading something, I, I, just because I'm thinking about finance about eight hours every single day, I think about... And then like, you read another oh my gosh, couple hours a day. <laughs> I'm like, this applies so well to investors. No wonder people are stressed out because they spend all of their time worrying about these things that they can't control and that are completely unpredictable. And the first one sounds really obvious, but I think people still just focus on it. And it's stock market performance. And I think an important kind of explanation behind this is you can control the expected average return of your portfolio by shifting the asset allocation. In other words, you know, the more you put in stocks, the higher your expected return is going to be. But you can't actually control what return you end up getting in reality. And I think a lot of people end up worrying about, well, what, what's the market going to do over the next block of time? Um, or which funds or which asset classes are going to perform the best? And at the end of the day, the answer to all those questions is like, I don't know, it, and yeah, it kind of and it kind of doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you should be making decisions based on long-term historical rates of return, and then kind of adjusting. So if you uh, plan on a certain return, and then and then returns are really subpar over your particular, say it's a retiree, and returns are really bad over your retirement, well, that's just tough luck, and you're going to end up spending less than someone who retired in. 1990 and then hits a giant bull market right that could happen but isn't part of retirement planning just the assumption that 
based on that idea that we can't, nobody can tell uh, what future returns are going to be. It's a distribution of outcomes. Instead of just the idea of tough luck, isn't it better than to assume and I know what you mean by that, that, look, that's always the potential. There's, 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 nobody has a right to a particular strong rate of return. Sometimes you just get a bad draw, and, you, and, and it's unknowable in advance. Isn't it better to just save or invest as if you may be on the low end of the spectrum of returns, and therefore I may need to save more? And if, I, if along the way I end up having favorable returns, um, you know, maybe I can back off my savings. And I think that's exactly the right approach. There's definitely a balancing act. So you don't want to take that to the extreme and say, well, I'm only going to withdraw 1% of my portfolio balance. That's just being excessively conservative and sacrificing your lifestyle unnecessarily. Um, but like you said, and that's kind of the premise of this article, and we get into it later on, is you, you need to basically focus on the things you can control. So that's asset allocation and kind of your portfolio withdrawal rate in your example. And then you adjust based on what ends up happening. And that's what you're saying is, okay, well, let's start with a really reasonable starting point. That's what we can control. And we have good information to tell us what that reasonable starting point is. But then at the end of the day, we have to just make adjustments over time based on the returns that we get. And and maybe Fred, I know another one you wrote about, and Fred, you can weigh in on this is, I mean, a big part of the financial services industry is, you know, they want to pontificate about what the economy is going to do. Uh, isn't yeah. it, it? It seems to me, in the near term at least, it's. And you kind of say this yeah. all the time, Paul. You might not see a recession ahead of you, but it, it there could be one when you don't think there could be. Sure. Well, that last time in uh, uh, the, the recession uh, began in uh, in the fall of two thousand seven or the early winter of 2007. We didn't know it for a year after that. So uh, recessions don't, uh, you know, uh, uh, register on a, like a weather forecast say that we're now in a recession. It's after the fact kind of thing. So it took us uh, almost a year to figure out we were in a recession. Uh, I, I told the story before, but I went to a conference in Washington in uh, the summer of 2008, which was like a month or two before the financial crisis and six months after the recession began. And uh, many economists are saying, well, there might or might not be a recession. There's going to be a slight uh, slowdown. Maybe it will just be a, a soft landing, uh, nothing to worry about. So you can't you can't predict. And, and those, the market uh, uh, was fairly strong right up until the uh, uh, the crisis. It didn't, didn't go down a year ahead of time. Is, isn't that part of your point, Dave, in the article is it really can't be forecasted in the near term. And even if you could, maybe it doesn't tell you what to do with your investments. Yeah, that's I mean, that's exactly what I wrote is, you know, for whatever reason, people still focus on what the economy is going to do. And first and foremost, no one can really predict, as Dr. Gertz said. But then the second point that I made was, look, even if you could predict what the economy is going to do, you can't build a successful investment strategy out of that. So the example I used was actually just after the time period Dr. Gertz used is, look, the economy recovered very slowly for the first several years after the recession. And if you would have invested based on that, you would have said, okay, I, if the economy is doing this poorly, I should probably be really conservative in my investment portfolio. But over that time period, you know, going up to today, I think the market's more than tripled at this point. Right. So if you were standing there in at the Haynes Bottom on March 9, 2009, and, and if Dr. Fred for the first time in his life said, Paul or David, uh, guys, I've never been able to do it before. I'll never be able to do it again. But I can tell you exactly what's going to happen to the economy starting today over the next four years. And you go, wow, great, tell us, oh, wise one. And he would have turned out to be correct. Okay, unemployment will not go below 7%. And even though you didn't ask or pay for it, the gross domestic product will not rise above 2% over the next four years from today. You're saying you would have looked at that and said, well, that doesn't sound like the kind of environment that's attractive I'm, to invest in. I'm going to wait until things get better. <laughs> right. That's what someone would say. Which and, is the definition of yeah, prices are higher. And we uh, we talk la not only <clears throat> that, but uh, even more uh, sort of good news for the average investor. Last uh, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Warren uh, Buffett won a, a famous bet with hedge fund uh, people saying that uh, – 
the S&P would outperform hedge funds, and he won by a huge amount. But what he didn't say was that if you told someone in 2006 or 2007, uh, the S&P is going to outperform Berkshire Hath- Hathaway, they've been really surprised. So the average investor could have gone online, uh, bought something in 2006 or 2007, and done better than Warren Buffett the last 10 years. Yeah, isn't that real? Isn't it? Only, only by a small amount. I understand. And I think he's even kind of admitted, you know, he's driving this big, giant super tanker now. He's not very agile. And I, I really think that's part of why he's encouraging so many people to invest in that Standard & Poor's 500 index. I don't know if you guys feel that way. And that's actually, that kind of reminds me of one of the big motivators for writing this article is I think so many people still think that investing is all about being able to predict stuff and then shift your portfolio based on those predictions. And they think, well, I, I don't know anything about you know the, how to forecast the economy or what the market's going to do or how to analyze stocks or mutual funds. Like, I can't, I can't be an investor. I, and then they don't invest for that reason. And at the end of the day, you don't have... In fact, the people who try to take that approach end up doing worse the vast majority of the time. And we're going to talk but about that in the next segment, what, I think. Absolutely. What I want people to know is that, look, investing is actually really simple when you focus on the things that matter, the things that you can directly control. And you stop trying to make decisions based on predictions about the market, the economy, and you know other things we're going to talk about. And I think political landscape is another one, isn't it? I mean, I've... I've talked about this on the radio before. I I remember when Bill Clinton was going to be an economic disaster. We had five of the best years ever in the stock market. Uh, President Obama was going to be an economic disaster. Uh, Some people probably think he was, but I'm not saying one way or another. So some people say, well, I think he was. My point is he was, you know, a lot of people didn't invest because they thought we had someone who didn't know how to run an economy. And in his watch, the stock market doubled. Uh, same thing, you know, with even Donald Trump. I got just as many clients saying, I can't be invested with that guy. Uh, you know, and, and of course, the answer is always the same. Look, it's a horror. I've seen that fail time and time again. But that's one of those things people kind of fester about, isn't it, Dave? Exactly. It's, it's a huge source of stress for people, and it's a big reason that people will not be invested at any given point because the political landscape is kind of contrary to what their political beliefs are. So if you're more democratic and uh, you're trying you're an investor right now those type of people are worried about Trump being in office and less likely to be invested in probably an appropriate portfolio and several years ago it was the exact opposite you know kind of hardcore Republican conservative people probably thought well Obama's going to be a disaster like you said but then you look at what the stock market did over that time frame and if you were sitting on the sidelines in bonds or cash you missed out on One of the best bull markets ever. And then kind of stepping away from those issues, going more towards personal life. There's curveballs in personal life that are going to show up. Uh, And we obviously they're a surprise, the nature of a surprise is you can't see it coming. Um, How do you deal with that? Well, I think this really gets down to you say, okay, well, what how do I stack the odds in my favor? And then you also you know, certain things are are potential problems. Uh, that can arise. So that's where insurance plays a role and whatever. But I think ultimately it gets down to that flexibility. And I think sometimes people put too much stock in their initial financial plans. And at the end of the day, there's so many assumptions involved in a financial plan and that that doesn't make it worthless. It just means, look, we're going to accept the fact that all we're really doing is pointing ourselves in the right direction. We're starting out at a very reasonable starting point. And then if stuff pops up in our life, you know, things like a spouse dies who had a, a pension that doesn't have a hundred percent survivor benefit. There are things you're just going to have to figure out when they when they arise. You try to protect against them in advance, but some things are unpredictable, and you just have to adapt. And then it's not all bad news on that front. When you think about it, there are a lot of things you can do to you know you talk about. Okay, those are some of the things you can't control. Therefore, you shouldn't try to spend too much time on them, if any. But about what about the things you can control? How is it that people can end up putting? taking that and saying, look, here's the three or four issues I can really control. How do I put wind to my back in that, you know, in that sense? Well, first and foremost, I think you need to create a financial plan. And I think, like I said, you want to come up with realistic assumptions or reasonable assumptions or maybe a conservative starting point. So you think of a retiree, the big ones are, you know, how am I going to allocate my portfolio? That's something that's directly under your control. How much am I going to withdraw from my portfolio? You come up with a reasonable starting point, a plan that's going to work um, probably in most scenarios. And then from there, you just, like I said, you don't worry about all the things that can go wrong. You just say, 
look, I understand things can happen that will necessitate a change to my financial plan, so you maintain that flexibility. What about the investments themselves? I mean, everybody wants to be blissfully comfortable with their investments in regard to their investments, but yet they also at the same time have to at least retirees finance three decades maybe in retirement, a rising cost environment. Um, how do you deal with that specific issue of, look, our investments we can't control, the, the outcome of the investments, only how much we can put in each asset class? Well, I don't think anyone who's listened to our show for a while is going to be surprised by what I'm going to say here. But the first one is diversify your portfolio. And oddly enough, people still don't do this. A lot of them concentrate their portfolio in a handful of stocks or mutual funds they think are going to outperform. Um, But at the end of the day, you really want to be really broadly diversified. So that's owning basically every asset class kind of across the globe. Um, because at the end of the day, you want to minimize the impact that one company or one asset class has on your actual lifestyle. And diversification is really kind of the only way to accomplish that. And, you know, one of the things that we all see all the time, probably the most uh, problematic uh, issue to all in, or to most investors are, you know, just, you know, don't just do something, stand there. Uh, they always want to do something and tinker or, or react on an impulse. That's an issue, isn't it? Exactly. And so I, I call this, I titled it Behave Appropriately. And at the end of the day, this is probably the most important thing on the list. Uh, really, when you think about what drives returns, the first one is probably your percentage of stocks and bonds. But the second one is, are you going to stay invested in that portfolio? And so many people shoot themselves in the foot with bad behavior, selling out of the market when it's down or chasing performance when it's up and shifting to kind of a higher equity allocation than they need. And a lot of that honestly circles back to their focus on the things that they can't control, the stressors in their life that they're worried about that we talked about in the first section of this. So once I think you stop worrying about those things that you can't control and don't stress about them, the behavior kind of falls into place because you're going to stop focusing on those things and you just accept, look, I've done everything I can do from a financial planning and portfolio construction process standpoint. So now all I have to do is just stick with it. Okay, I'm going to go to quick text from Mark. Say a person has $80,000 sitting in cash savings account. They're retiring within four years. What would be two of the best places to invest this money? This would supplement other investments and pension already in place. Well, I don't think we can be all too specific about that. I think the first suggestion is always going to be to wrap that question around a plan. Or better yet, wrap the plan around the question. If you work with an advisor, and of course, it's kind of like, you know, a barber telling you you need a haircut, right? <laughs> For a financial planner to, to say you, you really ought to wrap a plan around it. I don't think that question can be answered, guys, uh, appropriately or responsibly if you don't know what the investments are going to be pointed at. Now, we have a little bit of an idea that it's probably for retirement, which suggests it might be money to supplement a two to three decade retirement. In that case, I suppose most advisors would probably say, you know, you could have that money in a balanced portfolio of 50 to 60% stocks, 40 to 50% bonds. I'm not sure that we can say that's our advice. In fact, I won't. I'd say talk to your advisor. And even that may be appropriate for five or six out of 10 people, but maybe not the right one for, for Mark. I think, too, you have to ask yourself, like, what are what are your, your other income streams? Because that can play a huge role. I mean, if most of your financial needs are covered by pensions and Social Security, maybe you have that invested 100% equity because you don't really have to use it to supplement your lifestyle. Um, if you have a lot of other assets, that can make a huge impact versus if this is all of your money that you have to supplement your income, you're going to get different answers depending on kind of the, the particular scenario but you're in. This is, this, this is just me saying, again, it's like a barber telling you need a haircut. This is the anguish investors go through on a daily basis that try to do it themselves. It's not that they don't have the, uh, the mental capability. Some of these people are just, a lot of, most people around here are really smart people. It's the emotional quotient uh, that uh, they struggle with. And then what I find is, if there's any value to having a retirement plan or a financial advisor, is just to eliminate the second guessing that goes on almost on a daily basis. I find that people that do it on their own, again, they don't lack the intellect, but the st- what I've learned after 35 years, I finally have been able to put my finger on it when, a, when somebody told me, I second guess when I do something, 
whether I should have done it or not. And yeah. when I don't do something, I start wondering, maybe I should have done it. That mental anguish over a two to three decade period will take a toll on anybody. Yeah, and there's also kind of a desire to uh, punish <laughs> bad performing assets. For example, I, I don't uh, think there's much uh, use for uh, value versus growth dichotomy, yeah. but uh, uh, there are situations where people uh, buy into a, uh, a, a portfolio that uh, – is going to perform all right over the whole business cycle, right. but not necessarily uh, one part of it. Sure. So uh, uh, the value people, if you bought value five or ten years ago, it looks really terrible. Right. But now's not the time to sell it. And value may come back into fashion. Right. So, it's about so, the time you get worn out. Yeah. So the po- point is you can – if you get into an asset that's not doing well right now, whether it's international or whatever, uh, that may turn around at some point. So you don't want to bail out uh, after you – I suffered all the pain before you get the, the payoff. And it's all too common. It's one of the most common things I see, just what you just, you know, you just put a hammer on it, Fred. Well, Paul, you recently, uh, not to leave you out, because we were talking about active management, which is professional management of just the assets themselves, kind of covering the folly of active management titled Ship of Fools. Now, I don't know where you came up with that title. but I'll tell you about okay. it. Okay. Uh, but you kind of explained some of the problems. We've talked about this. It's a recurring theme. But one of the things my clients have told me over the decades are, Paul, it's that consistent message that keeps us sane. So, you know, at the risk of going over this again, and I still think it's, it's always appropriate, kind of take us where you were, what led you to that idea? Well, the original motivation was I was looking at my girlfriend's 401k statement because she works for a large medical device company and they got purchased by an even larger company. So their benefits changed. And as I'm looking through her mutual fund choices, it really kind of hit home because I think we tend to think everyone thinks like us. You know, they know that there's really not any value to be gained in active management. But when you go through a 401k statement, you realize really about three out of four funds in every single asset class are really expensive, actively managed stuff that kind of flies in the face of reason, if you ask me. And I was a little frustrated because, you know, this is a large company. They have right. a they ton of resources. They, they could afford the best. They should know better. So naturally, to calm down, I listened to a little Grateful Dead, and one of my favorite songs by them is called Ship of Fools, and kind of like Dave mentioned, uh, when you think about finance all day, sometimes the dots just kind of connect themselves. So I'm sitting It's a way of thinking. Yeah, and and it hits me like lightning bolt. Active management, the whole industry around it, you know, all the hype around it, and all the people who are on board with it, not really realizing that they're probably not going to get what they signed up for, the whole thing is, drum roll please... A ship of fools. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not old enough. Uh, you're, uh, Catherine Ann Porter had a, a novel. <laughs> There's actually six songs called Ship of Fools, and the concept of of a story called Ship of Fools actually goes back to Plato's Republic. Right. So yeah, I learned this as I was as I was writing the blog. Right. There's also. Uh, there's a, a the motto of socialism sometimes is uh, next time we'll get it right and that that could be true for active management there's always an excuse uh, why it didn't work in the past but uh, now we're in a different environment uh, active management is going to work uh, uh, in, in the new whatever the new environment is while it didn't work in the past and that's obviously uh, you've seen that fail time and time again because you've been on a lot of boards and endowments and things like that and and Paul. Um, we talk about active management, but sometimes we don't step backward and say, well, what are those guys even talking about? Let's define that first. Um, why discuss active management as opposed to what? Right. Well, I think um, a lot of people don't really know how to distinguish active management from passive management. And in passive management, you're pretty much passively holding the entire market, You know, all the stocks that represent an asset class. Active management, um, by comparison, you're looking to pick the right stocks, you're looking to own the right stocks or be in the market at the right time, and you're really making a lot of investment decisions based on predictions with the idea that I need to do all this to beat the market. I need to outperform the market. And I guess the really important question is, you know, not in and of itself does it make investors better off, it's, it's better off compared to what? So you really have to compare them to that, that passive, what, what someone could have passively owning a market index and that's what they have what are called benchmarks to compare active managers and, to. And just you just said something that struck a chord to me. You said compared to what? I always felt like in life you always have to ask these three questions. Compared to what? At what cost? And where's the evidence? Um, so what we'll take us down that road. Uh, first of all, do they tend to do better than the passively managed 
people might think of them as index funds. Well, it's actually kind of a funny story because these benchmarks were invented to show how much value active managers were creating with their actions. Uh, funny story, it blew up on their face because just about ever since the beginning of time when they came out with them, they've showed that they've done the opposite. They haven't really been able to, to beat their benchmarks. A very small handful do. Only about you know under twenty percent. If you look at twenty year period or fifteen or twenty year periods, I'm looking at the fifteen year period ending in two thousand sixteen. But the numbers, I mean, I've I've seen this report. Dimensional Fund Advisors does it. It's called the Mutual Fund Landscape. Um, they do it every year, and the numbers really don't change. You know, maybe it's eighteen one year. And they shouldn't change that much over time because it's a really more of a mathematical issue. Well, than even anything. the active managers. Uh, uh, if you don't count the fees, they're going to do as well as the market. Sure. Uh, the, as, the question the is that they're charging you to uh, perform the same way the, that, uh, the index funds uh, perform for and free. Fred actually brings up another kind of argument. It's kind of a philosophical argument, but it's called the arithmetic of active management. And it was first proposed by a, a Nobel Prize winner named William Sharp. And the idea is that, look, all investors out there, active and passive, own the total of the market, right? They own everything that there is to invest in. So if one active manager decides to make a bet on one stock, he decides to hold more of it. Well, there had to be someone on the other end of that trade. There had to be an active manager who underweighted that same stock. So if you look, and this is kind of what Fred was saying, if you look at the performance of active managers in the aggregate, they're going to deliver the market return. But there's a catch there. That's the second question I said people should ask themselves, at what cost? And that's exactly <clears throat> the point. Both paid to play the game. They paid to either do research and decide why that stock was such a great stock. They paid in their actual transactions when they traded to go purchase or sell the stock. And all that drives up costs. And those costs become a hurdle that it's really, it becomes too big of a hurdle for active managers to actually get over in order to create value. And there's also the, uh, the problem that people have of overestimating their own uh, capabilities. You, you can say, well, uh, I only invest in the uh, the top quartile managers. I'll do what, fine, but well, the question Fred, is, you must have read the notes because <laughs> I was actually going to talk about so that. Because that's the issue. Okay, I'll pick the good ones, Paul. I'll, okay, I agree. Uh, four out of five probably aren't going to earn their keep. I'm going to pick the winners. And if you actually pick from, and you even nailed it, the top quartile, the top 25% of performers, only about a quarter of those go on to outperform in the next period. So if you actually pick from the winners, you're going to be disappointed the vast majority of the time still. We're going to take a quick call. Gary, you're on the money. Yes, good morning. Yes, sir. Uh, my question, i got two questions. First okay. one is, could you tell me what you think the percentage of your net worth or uh, I guess would be that you should have in cash or would be acceptable to have in cash? Um, I said, go ahead. Second question here, and I'll hang up. Like go ahead. Do. All right. Is, do you do you guys agree with the four percent uh, withdrawal rule on your on retirement? I'm about maybe a year out from retirement, yeah. so I'm just trying to kind of. Okay, we we'll got we have about four minutes. We'll run through those as fast as we can, Gary. Dave's eyes lit up about the four percent rule. Okay, we got to give this one to him. So, so let's, <laughs> if the cash one, it just depends on your. Everybody has a number that they're uncomfortable and they cannot live well if they don't have a certain amount of cash. Certainly, having three to five percent cash it, to me is not too but much. It's three cash. to five percent of your income, not your portfolio. I mean, your portfolio. If you have uh, ten million dollars, your percentage is going to be quite different. That's from, what I mean. You uh, really so. have to assess what what kind of money might I need to get at in the next six to 12 months? Yeah. That month should be in And cash. it maybe more depends on your income than your... The 4% rule, Dave, uh, and the 4% rule is basically, well, why don't you explain what it is? You have a couple minutes. Right. So I, I kind of touched on this earlier, but one of the, the, the way they came up with the 4% rule is they said, okay, well, let's look at the worst 30-year period in the history of the U.S. stock market and figure out how much we could withdraw from our portfolio. And, and it's what, a balanced portfolio of, of I think, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Yep. And what they found was if you took 4% of the initial balance and then increased that for inflation each year to keep your purchasing power steady, um, you would never have run out of money even in the worst 30-year periods in the history of the U.S. So that's time periods like 1929 through 58, and then the time period including kind of the 60s and 70s with hyperinflation, stuff like that. The problem with that, I, I like when I was going through the RACP, the way they put it is taking a fixed withdrawal from a variable portfolio makes no sense. It and doesn't. I completely agree with that. Because most of the time with a 4% withdrawal, what you're going to end up doing is vastly uh, underspending relative to what you could. But then there are even times where you probably shouldn't just 
automatically do the 4% and increase for inflation. Maybe you should, you know, temporarily cut back. You're much better off taking some sort of variable portfolio withdrawal to adjust for the outcome that you actually get, the investment returns that you actually get to, yeah, I've, to balance kind of being too conservative with uh, being kind of overly aggressive. The best plan is to be flexible in your retirement spending. But other than that, I've done so much research in this area, my own research, that I'm convinced if you really want to maximize your standard of living in retirement and be able to spend a lot more reliably, you have a set of rules for when to make adjustments ahead of time that are well-researched, have good theory behind them, and that are practical and work. But and so, you know, I've devised strategies. Well, I don't even... 4% rules, it's a very common rule, Dave. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think if you want to be conservative and not have to really reassess, and you're okay with the fact that you're probably underspending relative Most to what you Most of the time you could, you'll find you underspent. Then I think it's fine for people. I mean, if you're going to follow a rule of thumb, that's probably somewhere in the ballpark of what you should do. I think it has a degree of reasonableness. Even though I wouldn't do it myself knowing what I know, I know that I feel that I can deliver a much higher standard of living with based on the rules and most people if they can have a higher standard like if you're following a four percent rule you just never know when to make an adjustment well the idea is you're not going to make adjustments but that by itself like you said a, f a fixed rate withdrawal in a variable portfolio well also your your age can 80 80 year old person probably doesn't exactly. want to have a four percent withdrawal rate. that's the other problem is it, it doesn't that's adjust where for the reality. underspending comes into play you know an 80 or 90 year old can probably have a 10 percent withdrawal rate at least so you can have a much higher standard of living i found if you have a set of sensible rules you can you can really you have it's just the best way to go about it and uh, that's something we do every day at rudy wealth management and you can always call us at 356-1400 if you're ever interested in a consultation where we'll, the coffee's on us and so's the hour anyway thanks for listening to paul rudy's on the money thank you dr fred gertz paul rudy and david rudy and we'll be back in a couple of weeks Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.